Well, hey, we're back in uh, Matthew, so if you will open up to Matthew chapter 21, we'll be going from uh, verses 33 through 46. Let me read that for you this morning. Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it. And he built a tower and leased it to tenants, and then he went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his own son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to Jesus, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. Good. <laughs> and although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. God, thank you for your word. God, thank you for... Uh, particularly this uh, segment of Matthew, now that we've come to this uh, final week of the life of Jesus. And uh, Lord, I, I pray that as we walk through this, that we will see all the significant things that, have, that are happening here. Lord, to see uh, just truly what you went through and what you said about yourself and, and, and really just putting uh, your requirements as the king uh, on your people calling them to account. But Lord, help us to hear it too, to understand what our mission is and what we must take responsibility for as your people. Your ways are best, God. You are the greatest. And Lord, we, we pray that, that you would use your word to, to draw our hearts to you, to, to soften us, to transform our thinking, God, to help us love you more and obey you more to be your people on display in this world, to shine as lights. So God, I, I thank you for uh, just this word, and I pray that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that would respond in obedience. That's what I pray for, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. By what authority? You know, that's, that's really what's going on here in this passage. But you know what? That's, that's really the, uh, one of the most essential issues that we all have to answer. You know, when we look at our culture, whenever there's issues, whatever the controversial issue is, people are trying to 
say, hey, this is what you should believe, and they will, sort, they will cite some source of authority. Because the, the question really comes down to is, well, how do you know? How come you're right and they're wrong? Why should I believe you? Authority. That is such a critical issue for life, for everybody. And, and, and even in society, just in general, we need authority in a society. We need rules to help us live together in a, in a larger group, right? So there's boundaries, but then we need somebody to enforce those boundaries, both to protect the innocent, those who are abiding by the rules, and then to also punish and enforce the laws on those who are, who are you know, criminal. <laughs> you agree, right? But that, that it comes down to authority. Who says you can do what you do? If they're wearing a badge, it says law enforcement. Oh, they're enforcing the law. They have the authority to act. You know, we talked about this last week too, and I, I you, uh, go backwards one slide. Oh, actually, I took it off, didn't I? Martin Luther, I had the slide up last week. That, that scene 500 years ago, when Martin Luther was standing before this council, the Diet of Worms, Worms was the city, the council that was there to tell him, hey, you need to recant, Martin Luther. You should recant of all your teachings. Repent, is what they're saying. But he couldn't, could he? Why did he say he couldn't do it? Anyone know this? You don't have to quote the statement perfectly, but what? Yeah, it goes, unless I'm convinced out of Scripture and by plain reason from Scripture, I don't care what the councils and the Pope have said. So here I stand. And you know what? He got it right. And I was talking to Jake and Taylor and Renee. We were just talking about different things this week and you know, we're in a culture that says, well, you know, uh, you name the issue, right? Same-sex marriage, LGBT, the, trans, you know, the gender, transgender, and all this kind of stuff. The question always comes down to, they're telling you, you have to believe this, and you have to step in line, but what is their authority? By what authority do they say these? Well, the consensus is, well, what consensus See, the thing is with Christians is that we have a really uh, a simple worldview in one sense, is we believe there is a God who is the king over all, who is the authority, and what He has laid out in Scripture is unchanging and is authoritative. That's what we believe. And so when we come to an issue, my first response as simplistic as it sounds, it says, is to say, well, what does God say in the Bible? Because this is the authority. You've got to remember, the Bible is not just a book, you know, a collection of letters from random people. It is, it is a collection of books, God over time revealing Himself. It's His self-revelation saying, here's who I am, here's my ways, here's how you can be in a right relationship with me. Here's how you face life. His word is authoritative. Psalm 19, I just love that passage, Psalm 119. It blows up Psalm 19 and makes, just goes verse after verse talking about the grandeurs of God in His word and how it's, it's, our, it's our light. It's our authority. 
That's a, such a key issue for you guys. We have to understand that. Otherwise, when every new fad comes up or new controversy, if you don't go to the Bible for your direction, you're going to be tossed to and fro. Do you recognize that phrase at all? It's out of Ephesians 4. The point of the church is to teach the Bible because the Bible is the authority to help us put on God's glasses. As simple as that illustration, I use it because when I look at you, you're all blurry right now. I do this, I'm like, oh, whoa, there he is. Sorry, Rich, you got it. But, <laughs> but I can now see clearly. When I'm out in the daylight, I wear my prescription sunglasses because this eye doesn't dilate as well anymore because that, you know, that accident I had, but it helps me see. And, and, and yes, that's what God's Word does for us. In a dark world, this is the light. In a confusing world, this clarifies. God's Word is clear for us. Okay? Now, what does that have to do? Again, I'm drawing it back into, that's what's going on on this Temple Mount when Jesus is confronted by the religious leaders. He has done something very public that really embarrassed the religious leaders. What did he do the day before this actually happens? What did he do that embarrassed them tremendously? He did what? Yeah, he cleansed the temple. Who was in charge of the temple mount? The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, they were in charge up there. Jesus comes up, surveys the scene, cleans house. Remember, maybe thousands of people up there. And he did this publicly. He ran out all the merchants. He caused a huge scene. It was embarrassing. It undermined their authority, their position, their power, their prestige. They were embarrassed, they were ticked, and they wanted his hide. Guys, that's, that's the emotion, that's the scene of what's going on. So when, they come, when we come to here to this passage, we, they're coming to confront him because not to ask sincere questions, but to challenge, accuse, and undermine him to go after him. You guys have to understand, that's a, it's a showdown. It's the high noon at the OK Corral. Okay, that's, that's what we have to see this as. His authority, after three years of ministering publicly, was undeniable. The crowds at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, well, the first thing they said is, wow, this guy teaches with authority, not like the scribes and Pharisees. The intelligentsia, the religious establishment, listen to him. They could see it. What happened in Jericho just before the triumphal entry? Well, it was a key miracle. I kept bringing this up to you. There's something happened that was so significant. What? Well, Lazarus, that actually happened a little bit before, but there's something that happened in Jericho. Healing the blind man. The blind men were yelling out, what? These two blind men, one of them, anyways, what? Son of David. These blind men had heard about all the miracles, had heard his, the authority of his teaching, and to them they could see because it was unmistakable that he was the Messiah. The blind saw. The spiritual elite were blind. That's, that's what's going on here. There's a blindness and Jesus is confronting because, again, the religious leaders, they had a God-given role 
in Jewish society. They were called to be the shepherds of Israel. Ezekiel 34, we looked at it a couple of weeks ago. There's a whole chapter devoted about the five mid five, late 500s BC where God, through Ezekiel the prophet, was calling out the religious leaders for fleecing the flock, for leading them astray, for getting rich off of them and not shepherding the people like they were supposed to. And because the shepherds were leading the Jews astray, Israel was not fulfilling its role in the world. Israel had a specific role in the world that God gave them. What was their role in the world? What? To be a light to the Gentiles, the Gentiles' nations, the peoples. Their whole role was to show the world, here is the true God and we are the people. Here's how we live. You guys got to understand that. They were given a mission. They were called a holy nation, a royal priesthood. If you've read the New Testament, you recognize that from Peter. And he applies that to who? To Christians. Because of this incident right here, there was a change. This incident, Jesus pronounced the change from the Jewish nation being a holy nation to a new people becoming the holy nation. I'll talk about that as we get through, but this is a significant passage in understanding what's going on. And Jesus also takes a couple passages and connects dots for us too. So we'll we'll see that as we roll through this. But we understand that Jesus' authority is what's being challenged here. And again, I showed you the frame. Uh, Go backwards one. There's a frame to these chapters from 21, 23, through the end of 22, there's, there's a frame going on. First, Jesus' authority is challenged, and then at the end, his authority is established. Right in the middle, we have three parables judging the six shepherds. We're on the second parable today. There's third one's next week. And then he's going to have three debates. And at the end, he comes out on top, and it says they, they couldn't ask him any more questions because he had them stumped. So important for us to see that. That's a little thing going on. We're right in the middle of this. All right? You can go to the next slide. So we've already seen the confrontation, the initial confrontation. We've already seen uh, the the religion. Jesus asked them a question. All right? And they they kind of go on the side. Well, what do we say? Because they said, hey, by what authority do you do these things? He says, well, I'll tell you by what authority if you tell me by what authority John the Baptist did his stuff. And they, go, they took a little aside. That was last week's passage, right? Last week's. And, they, and they're like, uh, they, they didn't debate the truth. They debated the consequences. Well, if we say John the Baptist was from heaven, then, John, then Jesus will say, well, why didn't you believe him? Because what was John the Baptist's main message? Oh, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is the Messiah. I'm the forerunner. He's the Messiah. But if we say that John the Baptist wasn't from heaven, well, the people will get ticked at us because they hold him to be a prophet. Good job, people. They saw correctly again. <laughs> so that's, that's the initial confrontation. And then he does the first parable. It was about the parable of the tenants. I'm not the parable of the tenants. That's this week. Is the parable of the two sons. One son, when he was asked by the father to do something, he said no at first, but then later he regretted or repented, and then he obeyed. Oh, pretty cool, huh? So if you initially say no to God, is there still a chance for you to repent and turn to him later? Yeah, isn't that cool? 
Grace is in there, isn't there? But then the other son said, oh, yes, I'll do it. But then he didn't do it. And then he asked the question, which of the, which of the sons was the good son, the obedient son? And they all said, well, the one who did the will of the father. Jesus says, who is the one who loves me? But he who obeys my commands, who does my will. Yes, obedience is so key in all this. But that was the first one. He challenged them in that first parable because of their willful disobedience. This week, he's going after their hard-hearted rebellion. Okay, so that's where we're in here now. This story. Okay, and he uses a very familiar scene. He uses another parable, but he's using something they're all very, you know, used to. Vineyards all over Israel. All right? Uh, he, he, he uses this to, to draw the people in. His parables are so just simple, but just profound in, in how he does it. And by the way, I didn't say anything about this. Oh, that's not the right. Anyways, that's the Temple Mount. It says that he was teaching up on the Temple Mount when they confronted him. So he's up there. And remember, there's thousands of people. And he's walking around teaching. And by the way, to teach is to do what? It's to display authority. So he's on the Temple Mount that he just cleaned house. He made the, the religious leaders look terrible, and he's up there asserting authority by continuing to teach publicly. And the crowds were listening. And when they confronted, he says, hear another parable. He's talking to the religious guys who challenged him, but here's the deal. The people were listening. Luke tells us the crowds were listening. They're watching the OK Corral. They were watching it go down. All right? Let me go to my notes here. Got to stay on track today. The master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. Okay, that was real quick, but here's the deal. This was a common vineyard, but it was a well-taken-care-of vineyard. Okay, it was protected. It had everything it needed. It was, it was just set up just right. But here's the deal. The Jews hearing this would also understand because this was a very common metaphor that, that Israel was the vineyard of God. He's almost quoting directly from Isaiah 5. Let me read that to you. Isaiah 5. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it goes on. Israel, one of the metaphors, we've seen it, one of the metaphors was, of Israel was an olive tree. Another one was, uh, oh my goodness, I just went blank. No, the fig tree was just from a couple of weeks ago. But another one was the vineyard. So Jesus, in using this story, is using a very familiar image. Okay? And, and who is the master of the house who built this vineyard? In their minds, the Jews are thinking, who is this? is God, okay? So that's, it's easy for them to, to track with what Jesus is doing. Again, all the details of this vineyard are taken care of. So when the owner puts it all together, it is ready to go. 
So when he gives, he has tenants who take over, they don't have to provide anything. They just got to take care of it. Do what the master wants. It's his land. It's his vineyard. Do what he wants. And, and that was, it was common to have people who owned land and had tenants take care of it. The owner would get what? And when the season, when it was time to, what would he get from them? He'd get a portion, right? And what was over and above what he required, that was their gathering, their harvest. And it was a really profitable arrangement, all right? But not in this situation. Not because of the owner, but because of the tenants. When the, when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. That's normal. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. If you look in the parallel account Mark, he, he kind of shows, it makes it a little bit longer. Matthew distills down to it, uh, just says that he, he, he shortens it, but he says that they kill, beat one, killed another, stoned another. The owner should, he had every right to expect to get his harvest, his portion. That was agreed to. He wasn't being unreasonable. The tenants were showing their evil hearts here. And, and again, if you're a Jew listening to this, Isaiah 5 is in your mind because he's almost quoted it exactly. So who are the tenants who are in charge of the vineyard? Okay, it's not just the Jews, it's the religious leaders. See, the Jews, the religious leaders, the religious established actually had a history of killing prophets beating them, imprisoning them, even stoning them. You can look up the references I have them if you want. And then, and this, and this, by the way, this next thing would frustrate the hearers as they listen to Jesus tell this parable. It says, and he sent other servants more than the first. What does that display about the owner? His mercy, his patience, his long-suffering. So this is not an evil owner. This is a gracious, long-suffering kind of master. But the tenants did the same to them. They repeated their evil actions. And and the hearers would say, what kind of owner would show this kind of patience? Come on, take care of them. But finally, this owner goes a step further. He ups the stakes He sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. A son. What status did he have in a house? Same exact authority, rights. He was the inheritor. So when he said something, it counted. He was not second rate. So when he comes to the tenants, they should bow to him and his wishes. And yet... These specific tenants do something very different, don't they? They plot to kill him. But notice how they want to kill him. Look what they say. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir, okay? So they knew exactly who he was. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him outside. It's very key. This little detail Jesus throws in there in this parable. parable. Because Hebrews 13 tells us that Jesus was killed outside the camp. 
It's a, it's, it's an amazing picture here. But let me, let me, before I read you that passage in Hebrews 13, it says, we see the full evil of these tenants. They knew the identity and rights of the son, yet they chose to murder him anyway, the motive to steal for themselves and to take this vineyard. So Jesus is telling this story. They all knew the master was God, right? We talked about that because Isaiah is a very familiar passage to them. But God is sending his son. And the, and the tenants recognized. It's not that they were ignorant about the son. It's that they hated him and wanted what was his. It was a hard-hearted rebellion. Jesus, in telling this, is also claiming to be the divine son. This is another claim to his deity. He had just done it when, when he was, you know, in the temple or in the temple surroundings and the children were yelling out, Hosanna to the son of David. The Pharisees were saying, hey, tell them to stop. Jesus says, no. Out of the mouths I've ordained praise. The kids were quoting from Psalm 118. Okay, he's also going to quote from that again here in this passage. We'll get to the same, but here's the deal. They quoted from a messianic psalm saying he's the Messiah. The Pharisees didn't like it, but Jesus' next quote showed that he was accepting it as divine praise. Because Psalm 8, which he quoted, is a psalm directed to God. And Jesus claimed it. Out of the mouths of babes you have ordained praise. He was saying, they're praising me because I'm God. We can't miss that. If you don't look up the passage, you can miss it. But there, I want you to know that, all right? But now he's doing another thing to say that I'm God. He's claiming to be the son of the master of the house who built the vineyard. Pharisees didn't like that, did they? But we can't miss it. Where am I? Here I am. And by the way, here's the interesting murder, so let's read it, Hebrews 13, 11 through 13. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. That's a detail from the sacrificial system. The bodies that are sacrificed are burned outside the camp. They're taken, some of them are taken outside. But here's what Hebrews 12 goes on to say. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. When he was, sac when he was on the cross, the cross was outside the walls of Jerusalem. It was on Golgotha, which was outside the walls at that time. He was killed as the Lamb of God outside the camp. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he did. So if you follow Jesus, you're going to suffer the same kind of abuse to some degree that he did. Because we're outside the camp. We are outside the accepted old ways. At this point, Matthew 21, Jesus has already told the disciples three times, starting back in 16, he said, hey, I'm headed to Jerusalem and I'm going to die. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be handed over to the religious leaders. 
and I'm going to die, and I'm going to be raised on the third day. Okay, he said it three times. We've looked at that already. But here, now, he's telling the religious leaders how they're going to kill him. He's telling them, you're going to take me outside the camp, and you're going to kill me. Who was in charge of his own death? Jesus was. It was by God's plan all along. This was not by accident that God had to say, oh, oh my goodness, what am I going to do now? I have to change my plan. i got to catch up here. No. Jesus has been in charge of his mission from the beginning. His timing, his way to be the atoning sacrifice. Can't miss this. Acts 2.23, the first sermon ever delivered in the church age by Peter. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. When was Jesus chosen to be the sacrifice to die? It says before the foundation of the world. Before the world was created, it was God's plan. God's in charge, folks. He's in charge of salvation, but he's in charge of your life. I hope that's comforting to you because, boy, life can get topsy-turvy, right? Uh, By the way, you're not going to have a job in a month. Oh, what do I do now? Uh, By the way, you've got cancer. Oh, what are you going to do now? Oh, by the way. Oh, by the way. That's, life is full of those, by the ways, aren't, isn't it? I, I hope you see in this, there's another hint here for us to just grab a hold of. God is in charge, and he's in charge of you. And I'll quote you a passage you know, but I want you to burn this in your brains. And we know that for all things, God works together, them for the good, right? He doesn't call them all good, but he says he works them together for the good. Right, for those who love God and are called according to his purposes. But what is the good? It's in the very next verse. That was Romans 8, 28. The next verse is verse 29. Those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. God's purpose for you in, in working all these things is to change you to be more and more like Jesus. All right, is that okay with you? the most glorious person in all the universe of all time, that's his end for you and for me. God's in charge. God's in charge. So there's a conclusion to the story. It's pretty simple. He, he asks who's listening, and we don't know who responds in verse 41, but here's what he says. When, therefore, you've heard the parable, when, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to the tenants? Okay, so he's drawing, he asks the obvious question, he's drawing the the listeners in, he's inviting them to think this over and respond, all right? And they said to him, we're not sure if it was the religious leaders that replied or was it the crowds, because it was so obvious, right? He will put those wretches, notice what they call these tenants, they don't call those tenants, they call them wretches, put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their season. The tenants, the evil tenants, will get death penalty. Straight up. Murderers, that's what they were. They were thieves. They were usurpers. And they will be replaced by faithful tenants. I want to talk about this replacement in just a second here, okay? Because... There is, some of you don't know about this, but there's a whole theology called replacement theology. And I know I hit on this at different times, but this is one of the passages 
that is one of the pivotal passages. So I want to go over it in just a second. But I want us to see what Jesus has just done. Who said the indictment or the sentence? Who was it? The people. It wasn't Jesus who said it. He asked the obvious question. It was so obvious. There's no confusion here. They knew who he was, and yet they chose to reject him because they didn't like what he demanded of them. He didn't call them righteous and holy. He called them out. He called them thieves, murderers, hypocrites. Just go down the list. Look at, the men. Look at what, what happened. What was the first thing that John the Baptist called them when he was baptizing out the wilderness and the Pharisees came to check him out? What he said, you brood of vipers, you bunch of snakes. You're just like Satan, is what he's saying. Boy, they didn't like him. And yet, so they chose to reject him, even though they, they should have. Like that first son in the previous parable, the first son first said no, but later regretted it, changed his mind and changed his actions. And that's what they should have done. And, and he said at the conclusion of that previous parable is that the, the faithful son is the one who regrets, but who believe the work that they're supposed to do, the obedience is to believe in Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God. Back to this one. In his explanation, he doesn't just say, hey, yeah, you're right, these guys are bad. He, he now quotes from Psalm 118 again. Again, you guys understand, Psalm 118 was, was a song that was sung during the Passover meal. It was part of the Passover. It was called Messianic. All the Jews knew this. So to quote from it is to be very significant. So he quotes from it. He explains the parable with this passage. So he's using Hebrew scriptures to draw more out of this, okay? That's why he doesn't just say, hey, yeah, you're right. They should be killed. He goes on to explain from the Hebrew passage, and we have to see why he does that. Have you never read the scriptures? That's kind of a mild rebuke. Hey, you guys call yourselves teachers. You guys need to go back and read again. That's what he's doing there. It's another rebuke on them. He says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So Jesus explains with this key messianic passage. Again, it's the same one, the same psalm that that the crowds had yelled during the triumphal entry, the same one that the kids had yelled in the temple courts. It's one of the most uh, most, uh, often quoted psalms in the New Testament. The key figure in here is the cornerstone. I'm not a builder, but I can, I can read and find out what, build, what a cornerstone does. And one of the cool things, well, first of all, cornerstone, it's the key stone that sets the, the alignment for the whole structure. And it's not a small stone. It's supposed to be one of the biggest stones to set, set all the angles and stuff. I'm looking over at Bob because I'm waiting for him to just go shake his head. I'll just leave it at that. He's watching me. Good. But here's the deal. When I was in Israel, you can go to the next passage or the next slide. When I was in Israel, we got to go to, to Jerusalem and they have exposed this, this whole area used to be under dirt because when the Romans besieged Jerusalem and then up on the temple to get after all the rebels, they actually were, were 
just knocking down rocks and then, and then piling up dirt so they can get up on there, okay? So all this has been exposed in the last few decades of the actual street that was from Jesus' time, okay? So um, next slide. This stone right here is one, it's not even the biggest stone, but it's one of the ones you can see. That's one stone. The biggest stone, one of the foundation stones there in Jerusalem, and where's the, I have the information on this one. It's huge. Where's it in my notes? It's monstrous. I didn't write it down, did I? Where is it? Oh, it slides back. Keep going backwards then. Oh, there it is. Okay. Whew, thank you. Thank you. Okay. So did you see that road? You saw how crumpled that road was? It's because the Romans, when they actually did get up on the Temple Mount, they started throwing some of the stones off onto the road. And you could see the road. These stones, the smallest stones, were causing dents in the road. The road, that way I pointed to earlier, that was made of stone too. So these are heavy stones, but the smallest stones weighed between two to five tons. The foundation stone estimated to weigh 570 tons. Huge stone. So when he's saying a cornerstone, he, and he's, where is he? He's on the Temple Mount. So they, they, they can picture what he's talking about because it's right there. They understand. Okay? So all that to say, I just, those are pictures that it was very graphic to me because when I was standing in front of it, I was like, whew, that's huge. And, and that's the whole point. This is a monster stone that weighs a lot. Okay, and, and, and just so you know, there, there's a little there's debate about who is the cornerstone of Psalm 118. Well, it's the nation of Israel. Okay, the, 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 the cornerstone that was rejected is really the nation of Israel. All the other, you know, nations of the world overlook this tiny country, and yet this tiny country is the one from whom the most important person of all time ever comes. You have to deal with Jesus, and he's from this tiny nation, okay? So that's one interpretation. Another one, oh, it's David. David was rejected at first by, remember when Samuel went to his family, and God told him, hey, go to this, you know, the sons of Jesse, and, and each one, it's like, oh, Samuel, that must be him, right? God says, no. It wasn't until the runt of the family came, right? That was the one who was the chosen one. Or maybe it's Moses. Moses was opposed as leader, and yet God said, no, this is my appointed man. Follow him. Okay? All that being said is that no matter what it is, the whole point is that the ones that people reject was instead really the one that God had chosen. And that's what Jesus is taking out of Psalm 118 to say, look, you're rejecting me. But I am the centerpiece to God's redemptive plan. I am the cornerstone. But he goes on. He connects some more dots for us. Okay, he, he takes another couple passages, another couple images about this stone. There's a book uh, called The Stone and the Glory. It's a great book following this image all the way through the Old Testament into the New. Just, it, you don't have to, I'm not going to go into it, but that's just a great book. But, but here's the deal. Jesus, I'm going to skip over some of this stuff just to keep moving here. He says, therefore... I tell you, the kingdom of God, he's going to apply the story to the religious leaders, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and giving a, given a people to a people producing its fruits. Oh, there it is. Good. Okay. So 
He tells you, you're rejecting me, but in reality, God's rejecting you. And your kingdom, the kingdom of God that is available to you that I have pronounced is now going to be taken and given to another people. That therefore is significant. It means this is the point of the story. And I tell you, it's him speaking from his own authority. What he's saying here is a huge condemnation. The king judge is sentencing them. What he says is given to another people. That word is actually the word for uh, nations or Gentiles, to the ethnos. So instead of the Jews, it's going to the world. And it's to be given to them so that they could be fruitful. So here's the deal. This new people is going to have the same mission, the same purpose. And what is that? What was the purpose of Israel again? To point people to the true God, to be on display amongst the nations. We have been given that same mission. I talked about this last week. This is kind of the so what. Folks, you're sitting here, we're in church together, and this is so important. We are to gather as Christians to praise God, to grow and to learn, but this is only preparatory. This is only preparation. Preparation for what? What's your mission? Yeah, being a light at the workplace to your next door neighbors. It's to share the gospel. The Great Commission, have you heard of the Great Commission? Matthew 28, 18 through 20. The king tells his disciples, go and make disciples. Disciples of who? Of Jesus Christ. Tell them about the Lord. Yes, we have been given the same, same mission. Okay. So before I keep going down that road, I, I do want to talk about future Israel. I think it's the next slide. Okay. People, there is a, a theology out there saying that Israel has been replaced and forever cast aside and has no future plans. God has no future plans for them. I'm here to tell you, no, that's not true. Okay, but let me explain this. Was that, were they indeed cast aside? Yes. But other scriptures have to be brought in to help us understand it. Romans 9 is very clear. 9 through 11 is all about this issue. Is that the Jews have been cast aside for a time. What is the time called in Romans chapter 11? Those of you might know. Times of the Gentiles. It's the mystery that was revealed, that was hidden in the Old Testament, but, is, but there are hints of it because God has always had His plan to incorporate the nations into His people. But this is the full-on disclosure of it in the New Covenant era. The Jews rejected Jesus, and He says, because of this, you are... And again, He was talking to that generation, and He was talking specifically to, at that time, to who? to the religious establishment. He had already pronounced woes on all these other Jews who had, followed, you know, who had come to hear him do, you know, do his teachings and they were kind of apathetic to him. The nation was under condemnation for sure. And within 30 years or 40 years of his crucifixion, they did receive a terrible judgment. The Romans, 
67 to 70 AD, it was a terrible time when the Romans came in and crushed the uprising of the Jews. Millions died. It was bloody. It was terrible. I think I mentioned this, that on the triumphal entry, it says when Jesus, when he came over the hill, the Mount of Olives, so that he could see, because he came from Bethany at first, and then you come to the crest, and then you can see Jerusalem, he started sobbing. People are singing his praises. He starts sobbing because he says, I longed to gather you as a, as a bird gathering its young, but, but I see the judgment that's coming. He has pronounced condemnation, but it's that generation. And it's for a time because God still has a plan because we have taste of it. This, this rejection by the Jews in, initiated a new era, the times of the Gentiles. The Gentiles are in Romans 11 says that they're being grafted in. Again, that was the picture of the olive tree. They're being grafted into God's people for a time. But there's another purpose for this time of Gentiles is to make the Jews jealous. What is this? All these, they're being blessed by God. They're being brought in. What? It's to make them jealous. And then we'll see. I'm going to keep moving. Go to the next one. But, but we see that it's not God's forever plan for the Jews to be cast aside. There is a day when they will be brought back in. Zechariah 12 has that for us, as does Romans 11. At one point, because I have to take you back, Acts 1, Jesus is saying goodbye to the disciples, they're the apostles now, and he ascends to heaven on the clouds. The angels say, why are you looking up into the clouds? He's going to come back the same way he left, on the clouds to the Mount of Olives. That's Zechariah 12. That's in fulfillment of Zechariah 12. And then it says that when he returns to the Mount of Olives, it says that in Zechariah 12 that they, the Jews will look on him whom they have pierced. That's right out of Isaiah 53. Pierce, referring to crucifixion, and they will mourn as for their own son. They will repent. And that's exactly what's talked about in Romans 11. It says that all Israel at that time when he returns and they see and repent, all Israel will be saved. God has sovereignly decided to bring them back in. And it says, and Paul goes to great lengths, he says, you Gentiles who are being brought in, who have been grafted in, don't you dare boast against the Jews. Don't you dare. They are beloved for the sake of the fathers. But God has a plan for them still. God has a plan. Okay, just so we're real clear. Is the current Israel God's government? Are they, that's God's divine? No, they do some wrong things, but they don't do near as much as you see in the news. God still has a plan for the Jews, so we, can't, we have to be very careful. We should be praying for the peace of Jerusalem. Praying for the Jews. And there is a huge harvest already starting. Chosen People Ministries, Jews for Jesus. There's many of these organizations. They're talking about more and more Jews becoming Christians. And even in the land of Israel, I was there at the Neset, the, the Congress, where they have now a, a, a group within it about for, for Christians you know, that, are, that are friendly towards the nation of Israel. They're recognizing, oh my goodness, there's all these Christians who support us. Why is that? Because we have a Jewish Messiah. He's already come. We want them to know him, right? Okay, back to this. Back to this. I just, I have to do that because when I, when I see Christian denominations 
you know, denouncing Israel, saying God has no place for them anymore. And we, we just had Martin Luther, you know, we celebrated the Reformation. Martin Luther, at the end of his life, wrote some really vile things. Early in his life, early in his life as a, as a believer, he was trying to witness to the Jews, but at the end, he said some vile things that were actually quoted by the Nazis in why they could kill the Jews. So we have to be honest about that, okay? So I want you to know very clearly we cannot do that. We have to stand with the Jews. So back to this. He starts saying this. Listen to this, okay? We're uh, verse 44, I believe it is. Yeah. He says, and the one who falls on this stone, Marie just talked about the cornerstone from Psalm 118, and the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, that means ground to dust, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Jesus takes the application of Psalm 118 a little further. He connects the dots, cornerstone, and he starts talking about this other stone that will crush, okay? And that comes from both Isaiah 8 and also Daniel chapter 2, all right? The rock falling comes from Isaiah 8 where it says this, and he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. This rock is going to cause people to fall, to trip up. Have you ever heard of that before? I believe that's in, uh, in 1 Corinthians. But let me keep moving on here. So there's a rock that falls, but there's also a rock that crushes. That comes from Daniel 2. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image. There was an image that Daniel was having a vision about. And it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold, all together were broken in pieces by this, this rock that crushed them and became like, uh-oh, I missed it. Bottom line is they were crushed by this heavenly rock. Daniel uh, chapter 2, 34 through 35 and 44 through 45. This righteous rock, this rock from God, was rejected by the Jews and yet selected by God to be the foundation of the new temple, the true temple for the new priesthood. And we see that in 1 Peter. 1 Peter is really clear. Verses 4 through 8, it says this, As you come to him, to Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe... The stone that the builders rejected has become the, storner, the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But he goes on in verse 29 and he talks about a new people. And these are the faithful, fruitful tenants that Jesus has talked about. Who are these new people? Peter tells us, but you are a chosen race 
a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Jesus is the cornerstone that was rejected and yet is the cornerstone of God's plan of redemption. But this stone, if you are against it, you're going to get crushed. If you're apathetic towards this stone, you're going to trip up. You have to deal with Jesus. Whenever I talk to people about world religions or cults, whatever, I always stick to Jesus because he is the key. What will you do with this Jesus? He was on the Temple Mount making it very clear, I'm the one. And they saw it. The religious leaders saw it. They, it was unmistakable. But they hated him. They were rebellious against what he was doing and what he was saying. Are you? Now, if you're a Christian, you belong to him. But the question is, is, are we being fruitful, faithful to the mission he's given us? That really, if you're a Christian, that's, that wouldn't, that's, that's the part that I get challenged by. How much do I shine? Posts up on Instagram and Facebook, well, that's cool and all, but am I actually talking to people about Jesus? If I do things up on social media, that's kind of safe, isn't it? Oh, Jesus is the only way. That's safe, right? It's one way to do it, but it's, is, that, is that the finality of it? I need to talk. I need to befriend people and share. You need to do the same. God has placed you around specific people on purpose. People say, oh, I have to go to the mission field. No, you don't. You are in the mission field. At your store. I'm looking at Ed here. He's got a mission field. At your doctor's office. At your new job coming up. I mean, I look around each one of you. You are on the mission field. Fallbrook Avenue, that's our mission field. I, I, we live on the same street, so. He's trying to witness to his neighbor down the street. Yeah, nice. He's talking about me. <laughs> <laughs> that was actually pretty good, Dan. But folks, we, we have to understand that that's what God has called us to be and do, Okay. In this, in this, it's real easy to see the religious leaders and say, oh my goodness, they're so bad. But you know what? We have to see what he was on them about is they failed in their mission. They didn't repent and believe and they'd led the people astray and Israel had failed in their mission. We have been given the same mission. Let me just finish this up here and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll pray and sing a song here. The unrepentant response of the religious leaders, and this is really sad. When the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. At least they got that, right? And though they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds. If they were really concerned about the truth, would they have any fear of people? No, they would fear God more. They feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Again, the crowds saw clearly the clear condemnation. They understood it, they heard it, and they failed to respond. Rather than repenting, they sought to arrest him, and later on they will kill him. There's a delayed showdown because of the people, but notice the right perception of the crowds. They clearly saw that he was at least a prophet, and indeed he was. So what? Well, this comes to, it's similar to the last parable. We have a mission we've been called to. It's right out of the Great Commission. 
I, I could, I just, you know, challenge us. Are we faithful? Are we? You know, I keep saying, I want us to be a faithful church. We may not have all the bells and whistles, but I want us desperately to be a faithful church, to love each other. And that's so cool here. But it's not just so that we enjoy being around each other. It's that we together we could shine for the gospel of Jesus Christ. This world needs us. More Park needs us, folks. People that God has placed around need you. All right? And go with boldness. You know, Paul, Peter says that we've been called to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus Christ. Is he excellent? How excellent? Oh, I don't know what to share when I have to share the gospel. You know what I tell people? What has he done for you? What has he done? That's why having a testimony is so important. I was an absolute jerk, self-centered, doing everything to be noticed. But then I, I was miserable. And I saw God. I saw the greatness of God through a friend called Coach Orr. And I saw his love and I saw what could happen and I repented and oh my goodness, I found life in Jesus Christ. Forgiveness of my sins. Tell people what you know to be true in you about God, right? Let's shine, right? Let's shine. Because man, I want to see, I, I, I pray all the time, I want to see new Christians popping up here. And then we have to figure out what to do with them, right? Disciple them over the long term. But man, I pray for that. Let's pray for that now. God, we love you. We want, you say the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And and say to pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers. Well, God, send us out. Send us out. Help us to walk out these doors with a, a renewed sense that we belong to you. We've got the cure for the worst disease man has ever faced. Eternity is at stake, and God, we get to tell people about you and your great love in Jesus Christ. So God, may we shine, may we be like salty, may we be bold, may we be overflowing with, with hearts full of thankfulness and hope and joy. Not that we don't feel the pain of life, but God, that we would have a rock-solid assurance a rest for our souls as we live this life so that people would see the hope we have and want to know why. So Lord, we we love you and we pray that this would be so more and more. In Jesus' name, amen.